Chapter Fourteen of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Fourteen. It has dawned upon me that I have never placed a proper valuation upon womankind. For that matter, though not amative to any considerable degree so far as I have discovered, I was never outside the atmosphere of women until now. My mother and sisters were always about me, and I was always trying to escape them, for they worried me to distraction with their solicitude for my health, and with their periodic inroads on my den, when my orderly confusion upon which I prided myself was turned into worse confusion and less order, though it looked neat enough to the eye. I could never find anything when they had departed. But now, alas, how welcome would have been the feel of their presence, the frou-frou and swish-swish of their skirts which I had so cordially detested. I am sure, if I ever get home, that I shall never be irritable with them again. They may dose me and doctor me morning, noon, and night, and dust and sweep, and put my den to rights every minute of the day, and I shall only lean back and survey it all, and be thankful in that I am possessed of a mother and some several sisters. All of which has set me wondering, where are the mothers of these twenty and odd men on the ghost? It strikes me as unnatural and unhealthful that men should be totally separated from women, and heard through the world by themselves. Coarseness and savagery are the inevitable results. These men about me should have wives and sisters and daughters, then would they be capable of softness and tenderness and sympathy. As it is, not one of them is married. In years and years not one of them has been in contact with a good woman, or within the influence or redemption which irresistibly radiates from such a creature. There is no balance in their lives. Their masculinity, which in itself is of the brute, has been overdeveloped. The other and spiritual side of their natures has been dwarfed, atrophied, in fact. They are a company of celibates grinding harshly against one another and growing daily more calloused from the grinding. It seems to me impossible sometimes that they ever had mothers. It would appear that they are a half-brute, half-human species, a race apart, wherein there is no such thing as sex, that they are hatched out by the sun like turtle eggs, or receive life in some similar and sordid fashion, and that all their days they fester in brutality and viciousness, and in the end die as unlovely as they have lived. Rendered curious by this new direction of ideas, I talked with Johansen last night, the first superfluous words with which he has favored me since the voyage began. He left Sweden when he was eighteen, is now thirty-eight, and in all the intervening time has not been home once. He met a townsman a couple of years ago in some sailor boarding-house in Chile, so he knew his mother must be still alive. She must be a pretty old woman now, he said, staring meditatively into the binnacle, and then jerking a sharp glance at Harrison, who was steering a point off the course. When did you last write to her? He performed his mental arithmetic aloud. Eighty-one, no, eighty-two, uh, no, eighty-three, yes, eighty-three. Ten years ago, from some little port in Madagascar, I was trading. 
You see, he went on, as though addressing his neglected mother across half the girth of the earth, each year I was going home, so what was the good to write? It was only a year, and each year something happened and I did not go. But I am mate now, and when I pay off at Frisco, maybe with five hundred dollars, I will ship myself on a windjammer round the horn to Liverpool, which will give me more money, and then I will pay my passage from there home. Then she will not do any more work. But does she work? Now? How old is she? About seventy, he answered. And then, boastingly, we work from the time we were born until we die in my country. That's why we live so long. I will live to a hundred. I shall never forget this conversation. The words were the last I ever heard him utter. Perhaps they were the last he did utter, too. For, going down into the cabin to turn in, I decided that it was too stuffy to sleep below. It was a calm night. We were out of the trades, and the ghost was forging ahead at barely a knot an hour. So I tucked a blanket and pillow under my arm and went up on deck. As I passed between Harrison and the binnacle, which was built into the top of the cabin, I noticed that he was this time fully three points off. Thinking that he was asleep and wishing him to escape reprimand or worse, I spoke to him. But he was not asleep. His eyes were wide and staring. He seemed greatly perturbed, unable to reply to me. What is the matter? I asked. Are you sick? He shook his head and with a deep sigh as of awakening caught his breath. You'd better get on course then, I chided. He put a few spokes over, and I watched the compass card swing slowly to north-northwest and steady itself with slight oscillations. I took a fresh hold on my bedclothes and, and was preparing to start on when some motion caught my eye, and I lucked astern to the rail. A sinewy hand, dripping with water, was clutching the rail. A second hand took form in the darkness beside it. I watched, fascinated. What visitant from the gloom of the deep was I to behold? Whatever it was, I knew that it was climbing aboard by the log-line. I saw a head, the hair wet and straight, shape itself, and then the unmistakable eyes and face of Wolf Larsen. His right cheek was red with blood, which flowed from some wound on the head. He drew himself inboard with a quick effort, and arose to his feet, glancing swiftly, as he did so, at the man at the wheel, as though to assure himself of his identity, and that there was nothing to fear from him. The sea-water was streaming from him. It made little audible gurgles which distracted me. As he stepped toward me, I shrank back instinctively, for I saw that in his eyes which spelled death. All right, Hump, he said in a low voice. Where's the mate? I shook my head. Johansen, he called softly. Johansen. Where is he? he demanded of Harrison. The young fellow seemed to have recovered his composure, for he answered steadily enough, I don't know, sir. I saw him go forward a little while ago. So did I go forward, but you will observe that I didn't come back the way I went. Can you explain it? You must have been overboard, sir. Shall I look for him in the steerage, sir? I asked. Wolf Larsen shook his head. You wouldn't find him, Hump, but you'll do. Come on. Never mind your bedding. Leave it where it is. I followed at his heels. There was nothing stirring amidships. 
Those cursed hunters, was his comment, too damn fat and lazy to stand a four-hour watch. But on the forecastle head we found three sailors asleep. He turned them over and looked at their faces. They composed the watch on deck, and it was the ship's custom, in good weather, to let the watch sleep with the exception of the officer, the helmsman, and the lookout. "'Who's lookout?' he demanded. "'Me, sir,' answered Holyoke, one of the deep-water sailors, a slight tremor in his voice. "'I winked off just this very minute, sir. I'm sorry, sir. It won't happen again.' "'Did you hear or see anything on deck?' "'No, sir, I—' But Wolf Larsen had turned away with a snort of disgust, leaving the sailor rubbing his eyes with surprise at having been let off so easily. "'Softly now,' Wolf Larsen warned me in a whisper, as he doubled his body into the forecastle scuttle and prepared to descend. I followed with a quaking heart. What was to happen I knew no more than I did know what had happened. But blood had been shed, and it was through no whim of Wolf Larsen that he had gone over the side with his scalp laid open. Besides, Johansen was missing. It was my first descent into the forecastle, and I shall not soon forget my impression of it, caught as I stood on my feet at the bottom of the ladder. Built directly into the eyes of the schooner, it was of the shape of a triangle, along the three sides of which stood the bunks, in double tier, twelve of them. It was no larger than a hall bedroom in Grub Street, and yet twelve men were herded into it to eat and sleep and carry on all the functions of living. My bedroom at home was not large, yet it could have contained a dozen similar forecastles, and taking into consideration the height of the ceiling, a score at least. It smelled sour and musty, and by the dim light of the swinging sea-lamp I saw every bit of available wall-space hung deep with sea-boots, oilskins, and garments, clean and dirty, of various sorts. These swung back and forth with every roll of the vessel, giving rise to a brushing sound, as of trees against a roof or wall. Somewhere a boot thumped loudly and at irregular intervals against the wall, and though it was a mild night on the sea, there was a continual chorus of creaking timbers and bulkheads, and of abysmal noises beneath the flooring. The sleepers did not mind. There were eight of them, the two watches below, and the air was thick with the warmth and odor of their breathing, and the air was filled with the noise of their snoring and of their sighs and half-groans, tokens plain of the rest of the animal man. But were they sleeping? All of them? Or had they been sleeping? This was evidently Wolf Larsen's quest, to find the men who appeared to be asleep and were not asleep, or who had not been asleep very recently. And he went about it in a way that reminded me of a story out of Book Curacio. He took the sea-lamp from a swinging frame and handed it to me. He began at the first bunks forward on starboard side. In the top one lay Oofty Oofty, a Kanaka and splendid seaman, so named by his mates. He was asleep on his back and breathing as placidly as a woman. One arm was under his head, the other lay on top of the blankets. Wolf Larsen put thumb and forefinger to the wrist and counted the pulse. In the midst of it the Kanaka roused. He awoke as gently as he slept. There was no movement of the body whatsoever. 
the eyes only moved they flashed wide open big and black and stared unblinkingly into our faces wolf larsen put his finger to his lips as a sign for silence and the eyes closed again in the lower bunk lay lewis grossly fat and warm and sweaty asleep unfeignedly and sleeping laboriously while wolf larsen held his wrist he stirred uneasily bowing his body so that for a second it rested on shoulders and heels his lips moved and he gave voice to this enigmatic utterance a shilling's worth a quarter but keep your lamps out for thrup any bets or the publicans'll shove em on you for sixpence then he rolled over on his side with a heavy sobbing sigh saying a sixpence is a tanner and a shilling is a bob but what a pony is i don't know satisfied with the honesty of his and the canuck's sleep wolf larsen passed on to the next two bunks on the starboard side occupied top and bottom as we saw in the light of the sea lamp by leach and johnson as wolf larsen bent down to the lower bunk to take johnson's pulse i standing erect and holding the lamp saw leach's head rise stealthily as he peered over the side of his bunk to see what was going on he must have divined wolf larsen's trick and the sureness of detection for the light was at once dashed from my hand and the forecastle was left in darkness he must have leaped also at the same instant straight down upon wolf larsen the first sounds were those of a conflict between a bull and a wolf i heard a great infuriated bellow go up from wolf larsen and from leach a snarling that was desperate and blood-curdling Johnson must have joined him immediately, so that his abject and groveling conduct on deck for the past few days had been no more than planned deception. I was so terror-stricken by this fight in the dark that I leaned against the ladder, trembling and unable to ascend, and upon me was that old sickness at the pit of the stomach caused always by the spectacle of physical violence. In this instance I could not see, but I could hear the impact of the blows the soft crushing sound made by flesh striking forcibly against flesh then there was the crashing about of the entwined bodies the labored breathing the short quick gasps of sudden pain there must have been more men in the conspiracy to murder the captain and mate for by the sounds i knew that leach and johnson had been quickly reinforced by some of their mates get a knife somebody leach was shouting pound him on the head mash his brains out was johnson's cry but after his first bellow wolf larsen made no noise he was fighting grimly and silently for life he was sore beset down at the very first he had been unable to gain his feet and for all his tremendous strength i felt that there was no hope for him the force with which they struggled was vividly impressed on me for i was knocked down by their surging bodies and badly bruised but in the confusion i managed to crawl into an empty lower bunk out of the way all hands we've got him we've got him i could hear leach crying who demanded those who had been really asleep and who had wakened to they knew not what it's the bloody mate was leach's crafty answer strained from him in a smothered sort of way this was greeted by whoops of joy and from then on wolf larsen had seven strong men on top of him lewis i believe taking no part in it 
The forecastle was like an angry hive of bees aroused by some marauder. What ho! Below there! I heard Latimer shout down the scuttle, too cautious to descend into the inferno of passion he could hear raging beneath him in the darkness. Won't somebody get a knife? Oh, won't somebody get a knife? Leach pleaded in the first interval of comparative silence. The number of the assailants was a cause of confusion. They blocked their own efforts, while Wolf Larsen, but with a single purpose, achieved his. This was to fight his way across the floor to the ladder. Though in total darkness, I followed his progress by its sound. No man less than a giant could have done what he did once he had gained the foot of the ladder. Step by step, by the might of his arms, the whole pack of men striving to drag him back and down, he drew his body up from the floor till he stood erect. Then, step by step, hand and foot, he slowly struggled up the ladder. The very last of all I saw. For Latimer, having finally gone for a lantern, held it so that its light shone down the scuttle. Wolf Larsen was nearly to the top, though I could not see him. All that was visible was the mass of men fastened upon him. It squirmed about like some huge, many-legged spider and swayed back and forth to the regular roll of the vessel. And still, step by step, with long intervals between, the mass ascended. Once it tottered, about to fall back, but the broken hold was regained and it still went up. "'Who is it?' Latimer cried. In the rays of the lantern I could see his perplexed face peering down. "'Larson!' I heard a muffled cry from within the mass. Latimer reached down with his free hand. I saw a hand shoot up to grasp his. Latimer pulled, and the next couple of steps were made with a rush. Then Wolf Larson's other hand reached up and clutched the edge of the scuttle. The mass swung clear of the ladder, the men still clinging to their escaping foe. They began to drop off, to be brushed off against the sharp edge of the scuttle, to be knocked off by the legs, which were now kicking powerfully. Leach was the last to go, falling sheer back from the top of the scuttle and striking on head and shoulders upon his sprawling mates beneath. Wolf Larsen and the lantern disappeared, and we were left in darkness. End of chapter 14